We're going to be in 1 Samuel 4. We'll start in verse 11 and end in verse 22 this morning. This will be the last sermon in our series, Rise and Fall, as we've been looking at the birth and call of Samuel and the judgment and death of Eli. Let me pray over the word this morning. Father, we ask that you would instill in us a great passion for your gospel. We ask that you would instill in us fear of God again, that you would make us a house of reverence. Lord, we believe this word to be fully inspired and errant. Use it this morning, God, to correct us, to encourage us. Guard my lips. Let your power come in this moment. Do what only you can do. Lord, I have nothing in me to bring this word forth today. It's got to be you, Holy Spirit. It has to be you, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Again, we're in 1 Samuel 4. We'll start in verse 11. William and Catherine Booth, you know the founders of the Salvation Army, um, they both came to Christ by the influence of the Methodist. William, in his um, late teens, his father died, late teens, he was 14 or 15, his father died, he drops out of school and he starts working as a pawnbroker to try to help his mom support her three, his three sisters. Some, some Methodist neighbors came by and invited um, William Booth to a Methodist meeting um, and slowly he would give his life to the Lord there. Catherine Booth, his wife, was saved as she meditated on a line uh, of a hymn written by Charles Wesley. And Catherine and her mother heard William preach a few times and met him through that way. Naturally, during their marriage, they became heavily involved in the Methodist movement, and they quickly caused a little bit of turmoil. Um, William once brought some neighborhood boys who were unchurched and unwashed, physically dirty, and William Booth had the nerve to sit him right on the front row. And he was quickly corrected by the leadership of the church because that was highly inappropriate. And William Booth preached open air, but he wasn't ordained. Open air preaching, you know, like on the street, he preached on the streets, but he wasn't ordained. He was just a layman, and he'd go out on the street and just let it fly, man. But he wasn't given the stamp of approval by the church to preach. He did have the power of God on his life, though. And many were frustrated and saw it as inappropriate for a layman to preach on the streets of England. Many were also thrilled with his enthusiasm and zeal. Once Booth led a notorious crook in the city to the Lord and brought him to a church, to the church, which again frustrated the religious crowd. How on earth are you frustrated when a religious crowd when a, when a crook gives his life to the Lord and shows the church, shows up the church, how in the world are we frustrated with that? After some time of fighting these kind of petty battles, being resisted by the movement who birthed him and his wife into the kingdom, the Booths sat in a Methodist convention in like a denominational meeting. They sat and they listened as the leadership decided to place greater restrictions on how and when and in which way you can do evangelism. And those restrictions were primarily aimed at the booths, and those restrictions would handcuff them um, as to how they could do evangelism. 
And William Booth sat in this convention and listened. And Catherine Booth, his wife, stands to her feet and shouts, never. I think William was a little startled. She leaped to her feet and cried out, never. And William didn't rebuke his wife out of embarrassment. I'm sure he might have blushed, but he caught her zeal and he stood up and he walked out of the meeting in protest. And eventually they left the Methodist movement and they landed in East London. Um, and a local mission reached out to the booths and asked William to become the head of this local mission. Now, East London in the time was um, filled with unemployed thieves, prostitutes, men and women, boys and girls operating in prostitution. At least 100,000, some say, unemployed in East London at the time. The city doesn't have proper sanitation. Um, this area of the city, people are drawing drinking water out of the same river that the sewage is dumped in. And um, this local mission, do you, do you guys know what I mean by a mission? This kind of organization that sought to relieve the poor and preach the gospel, asked the booths to come and lead. And the booths were, were frustrated. Maybe frustrate's not the right word. But they were grieved by the thousands and thousands of poor and destitute families who did not have the gospel they did have plenty of alcohol, though. There were alcohol shops everywhere, um, which left their families more poor and more destitute. And the Booths felt that the churches in the area had not done a good job of bringing the gospel to these poor, hurting people. And William Booth became grieved at the lack of gospel work in this region. And sometimes that's where real gospel work begins. That's where real gospel actually begins to take root in the community when some man or woman in the church actually looks out and begins to be grieved and frustrated at the fact that there are thousands suffering and no one actually doing anything to bring the gospel to them. It was this place of frustration, this place of looking at this daunting task of hundreds of thousands of people drowning in their own sorrow in the church, not doing much about it, that the booths stand up and say, no, we'll do something. These churches were ineffective at reaching this region. They weren't actively preaching the gospel, at least not to the lost. They were certainly having Sunday services where I assume the gospel was preached. But at some point, a church has to decide, how do we get the gospel out of our little hub and group and get it into the streets? And the churches in this region seem to be unmoved by the brokenness of the city. And you have to ask yourself this question, and I have to ask myself this question. Are you unmoved by the shambles around you? Does it grieve you to a place of brokenness? Have you known tears over those in our community who live life in a spiritual stupor, thinking another drink will drown their misery? What are the suffering of the people that live here around us? Does it shake you at all? What of the loneliness of the hundreds who are completely and totally lonely? How does that make you feel? How does that impact your 
prayer life? Does it move you? Are you concerned with the fatherlessness that plagues our nation and plagues this region as well? The drug addiction, the thousands in our community who live totally unaware of their own desperate need for Jesus, who gorge their flesh in hopes of finding some momentary satisfaction. Are you concerned at all with them? You may say, well, this is not East London in the late 19th century. This is a prestigious community. And I would say, I agree, this is not East London in the 19th century. But when's the last time you got on the ground and asked Jesus to reveal to you his heart for our community? What does our community look like from the eyes of heaven? Yes, maybe prestigious and a little more wealthy than most, but that... The apostles walk by a sick man and they say, sick man begging, and they say to the man, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have in the name of Jesus, I say to you, get up. I think heaven may look at our city and say, silver and gold you have, but you sure do not have the power of God in your midst. have plenty of material goods, but how many really know the anointing of the Holy Spirit? How many have really been woken in the night by the sweet voice of God? How many have got down on the ground and wept before God, crying out for the salvation of their kids and grandkids? How often is that happening in our community? Because Jesus says to Laodicea in the book of Revelation, this is words direct from Jesus' mouth, Jesus calls that city, he says that you, you view yourself as rich and prestigious, but I view you as poor, blind, and naked. And that was an insult to that community because they were prestigious. And do you know how they made their money? They made their money making, selling cloth. And they had this eye salve that helped people with, with, with eye disease. That's how their two primary means of income. And they were very wealthy and Jesus says that you're dressed very nice, but I see you as naked. And you sell this eye salve, and you have great vision, but I see you as blind. And you're rich, very rich, but I see you as poor. And you have to begin to ask those questions as you look at your community. How many really know the power of God? How many have really tasted the sweetness of Jesus? You could say, no, this isn't East London in the 19th century. And I say, you look harder. Look from heaven's perspective. Lay on the ground long enough to get Jesus' heart and eyes for this city, for this nation. Well, anyway, the booths weren't content with doing church while a city lived in hell and headed towards it. And I don't have the next hit program up my sleeves that's going to spark church growth, but I do have tears, I can tell you that. There have been times where I laid in tears. I, I don't have an agenda or a plan that's going to cause the city to re receive the gospel, but I do have a broken heart. And, and we, at some point, we do have to develop strategy and get organized. And the elders and I are praying about that. Staff is praying about that. What is our next step? But it's all for naught if you don't have broken hearts. We could have all the strategy in the world, but if you don't know real prayer, it's for naught. No strategy, no program, no organizational movement could ever substitute the real power of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If we're not a house where people step in and experience real conviction, what are we, man?
asking my question to you this morning is, are you spiritually awake? Are you alive? Do you feel and do you sense? Are you grieved by the sorrow and suffering of our community? Does it bother you that there are many headed towards judgment without ever really hearing and understanding the good news of Jesus? How does that make you feel this morning? Well, the booths got to work, and in just a matter of years, they had 57 preaching stations around London where people could receive food, clothing, and someone was always preaching the gospel there. And, you know, they focused on practical needs, trying to relieve suffering, viewing that as they relieve suffering, people would be open to hear what they had to say. And the mission changed its name several times and eventually became the Salvation Army. They organized themselves in military structures, you know, called William Booth General, which brought more mocking. But the Booths were effective, and they were wildly effective. And they were despised. Many mocked them. But no one could say that they were spiritually asleep, and no one could say that they lacked zeal zeal for the gospel and no one could call them stale I'd rather be called a fanatic than be called lethargic mock me for trying just don't find me complacent for heaven's sake don't find me stale Charles Spurgeon was a contemporary of the Booths and Spurgeon was brilliant and influential and he wrote of the Booths, who many were critical of, Spurgeon wrote, they stir the masses of London. If there's anything you could say about them, the masses of London are stirred to hear the gospel of Jesus because of the Booths. Say what you say, but they're doing something. And William Booth said this, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there's a drunkard left, while there's a poor, lost girl upon the streets, where there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, and I'll fight to the very end. Where's this passion in our midst? Where's that kind of conviction? And William Booth made this comment that I thought was so relevant as we approach the end of our series from 1 Samuel. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, and the family of Eli will be judged. And this morning we'll read as the famous child Ichabod is born. William Booth said this about the next hundred years. Again, he lived in the late 19th century, early 20th century. He said this, The chief danger that confronts this coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost. Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and politics without God, heaven without hell. This morning as we read, Israel will be left without the blessing of God's presence. And Booth says to us, the next century, your greatest danger will be religion without the Holy Ghost. If that's not our pitfall, I don't know what is. Christianity without Christ. And this morning we've been, this I don't know, last eight weeks we've been circling around a single theme that I don't think that I've articulated perfectly well yet, but the theme is this, that when a church abandons the fear of God, it won't be long before the power of God abandons them. You 
you hear that this morning. When a church abandons the fear of God, it won't be long before God refuses his presence and power. Oh, many churches continue on, and they'll keep having Sunday services, and many churches will even be somewhat effective, but the power of God will not be in the midst of a people who deny him. You won't find the presence of the Holy Ghost in the midst of people who have turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Now, that's a phrase from Jude 1.4, and it maybe describes our culture better than any singular passage in the Scriptures. That in the last days, there will be some who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. The ESV translates that as this. Those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning they, they attempt to cling to the grace of God, but they abandon the fear of God, the reverence of God. They don't take God seriously. God is gracious to us, completely and totally gracious. But if you live without any real fear of God and you ignore his demands of holiness while you cling to his grace, Jude says you pervert his grace. You turn it into a license to live in the flesh while easing your own conscience. And that's exactly what Eli will do. And his sons, they live however they want to live. They live in the house of God. They operate as priests for literally the entirety of their lives. They look religious, sound religious, but they do not honor God. They know no fear of God, and God will abandon them. God will not be found in the midst of the people who abandon the fear of God. Now let's read our text, and I'll do my best to quickly wrap these ideas up. 1 Samuel 4, I start in verse 11. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, and we, when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. It's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said, Do not be afraid, you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. For their ark of God has been captured. Now, if you haven't been with us, I'll just explain quickly, remind you of this story so that you kind of understand where we are. 
for the first four chapters of the book of Samuel, we've learned of the birth of Samuel and the latter years of the life of Eli. And what we know about Eli's family is that Eli um, has not honored the Lord. He has sinned. He has eaten portions of the sacrifice that that God said belonged only to him. We know that Eli's sons have threatened the people, that Eli's sons are having sexual relations with anyone um, in the house of God. And we know from chapter 2 and chapter 3 that God spoke to Eli and said, I will not allow your family to continue to lead my people because you have dishonored me. So beginning of chapter 4, the Philistines come against Um, the Israelites and the Philistines overtake them. 4,000 men die. As chapter 4 reads, the people of Israel, the elders say to one another, what should we do? We've just been defeated by the Philistines. Why has God allowed us to be defeated? Rather than repenting, they ask for the ark of God to be brought in. So Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, come running into battle with the ark of God, thinking that God would defend them now because they brought the holy relic. And the scripture says that 34,000 more die that day because God does not honor the men who carry the relic. What we've just read is the account of Eli waiting at the gate to hear what's happened at the battle. The passage says that a young man runs by Eli, tells the city that they've been defeated, that the sons of the priests are dead, and that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. Then comes back to Eli, reports the news. Eli falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. His grandson is born that same day, and his wife dies in labor and names the child Ichabod. Now, there are just a few things in this passage that we don't see naturally as we read it that I want to just draw out, and I'll just kind of quickly bring this thing to a conclusion. First, the scripture says that Eli falls backwards off his seat. The picture of God's response to the spiritual leader of Israel who has no fear of God. God knocks him off of his seat. The Hebrew literally reads that Eli fell off of his throne. That Eli was seated on a a throne and he fell backwards off of it. The idea is that Eli has brought a seat, and not just any seat, but a seat that kind of declares his greatness outside the gate. And he waited for hours for news of the battle. Now, we know that outside the gate, we've talked about this before, is the place where the elders met. They kind of discuss politics and they kind of strategize for the future. So Eli goes and takes a seat, you know, a seat that's very dignified. The scripture calls it a throne. And he puts a throne down in the place where the elders meet. And he sits very dignified in his position, a throne-like chair. And he's old, honored, respected, feared even. The passage says that a young man runs by him with his clothes torn and ashes on his head. And Now that's a universal sign of mourning and grieving. The young messenger runs by with his clothes torn and ashes. It's clear that he's grieving. But Eli is so old, he's 98 at this point. He's so old that he can't see. He hears the young man run by, but he didn't see what he was wearing. And the young man didn't stop to explain to him what was going on seems like Eli thought of himself as this honored, revered man, but the young man didn't seem to think he was that honored, didn't need to stop. Eli doesn't see the ashes of the torn clothing, but he does begin to hear moaning and groaning in the city. 
And finally, the messenger who just ran past him to the middle of the city walks back out and explains to Eli what's happened. Israel is defeated. His sons are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been lost. And at this news, Eli immediately falls from his throne backwards and breaks his neck. He dies instantaneously. And there's imagery here that we would do well not to miss. Eli has now been dethroned. He has been removed from power. He has lost his legacy and his influence in just a moment. As you follow the narrative, which we won't, and you follow it into chapter 5, the scriptures tell us that the the Philistines brought the ark of God into the house of Dagon, who was a false god. And the ark of the covenant sat in the temple of Dagon. And the next morning, as the Philistines came into the temple of Dagon, Dagon was laying face down. He had fallen in the night. They pick him up and put him back in his place and leave the ark of, the God, of, of God there in the covenant as a sign that, that Dagon has defeated Yahweh. And the next morning they come back, and this time um, Dagon is lying face down again, but his head is, broke, is broken at the neck, and his hands are lost. And God is declaring something through this passage that he will not allow his name to be dishonored, not by the Philistine worshipers of Dagon, nor by the religious leaders of Israel. He will dethrone the false god Dagon, and he will dethrone the religious leader of Israel who has lived his entire life in a place of spiritual authority with a lack of real fear of God. Eli and Dagon, Dagon both fall in the same way, both thrown down, both are dethroned. Eli no longer sits on the throne of Israel. Now there's another piece of imagery that we miss reading a translation, not reading the original language. The passage in verse 18 calls Eli old and heavy. The word for heavy there is kabed. It means heavy, weighty, or burdensome. It first communicates that Eli is very overweight. I've told you before, don't hear any stones thrown from me because it takes everything I got to keep weight off me. I still got some weight I need to lose. I, I know what it's like to struggle with that. But Eli is not overweight but simply because he struggled with his weight. He's overweight because he's eating portions of the sacrifice that don't belong to him. And, and scholars say that this word is used intentionally because it doesn't just communicate the fact that Eli is overweight, but it also carries with it this idea that his sin was weighty, that his sin was grievous. It carries with it the idea that Eli was overweight first, yes, but it has this underlying nuance that he was an, a weighty individual, like a person with authority, and that because he was weighty, his sin was very weighty, and it carries this kind of lying nuance that there was a burdensome rebellion because of the weightiness of Eli. The text in verse 18 says that Eli is kabed. He's heavy, weighty. Sometimes the word is translated grievous. It doesn't just mean overweight. Eli is kabed, very heavy. The daughter of Eli proclaims that the glory is lifted. And the word for glory there is kabod. Now those two words are the same root. And kabod is always, most of the time, translated as glory, but it also means weighty, it means powerful, it means influential. 
The heaviness that comes with God's power is in Scripture called His glory. It's the thickness that fills an atmosphere when God steps into a room. Think of Solomon dedicating the temple of the Lord and the cloud of God being so thick in the temple that no one can stand. No man could stand because God's glory is heavy. It, it, it literally carries with this idea that when God manifests himself, the atmosphere becomes weighty. The kind of weightiness, you know, the kind of moment where God is so present, so actively present in a moment that all you can do is hit your face, like that kind of holy moment. So the narrative tells us that Eli is kabed, and then it says that the kabod of God is gone, and then when she births her son, she names him Ichabod, meaning no glory. So the scripture reads, literally, if you follow the nuance as well, that the weightiness of Eli's sin has caused us to lose the weightiness of God in our midst. And the priest's son, who should lead us into future glory, she names him Ichabod, meaning where is the glory or no glory, no weighty presence of God. So Eli is kebed. He's fat from eating portions of the animal sacrifices that didn't belong to him. And because of the weightiness of his sin, God's weighty glory is now gone. And Eli's daughter, as she loses her life in labor, she names her son, no glory, Ichabod. They've abandoned the fear of God and they find themselves gloryless. Now Eli's daughter-in-law has just learned that her husband is dead. Her father-in-law is dead. And it's on this day that she begins to feel the pangs of labor, the pain of labor. She's getting ready to give birth to a baby boy, which in this culture is the height of pride for a woman. To have a, a son, to have an heir for your husband is the most proud thing you can do. He's an heir of Eli, of the priest and the judge. And the child being born should carry legacy. He's of the right lineage. He should be given a family name, something that signifies great destiny and calling on his life. He's born of the holy family. But in this birth narrative, this moment that should bring pride to the priestly family, there is no one left to smile with pride. No one left to enjoy this great moment. Eli is dead. Both of the sons are dead. This baby will have no father and no mother. And the mother with her dying breath does not name her son some great family name or proclaim destiny and purpose over the son. The mother with her dying breath declares over her son, we don't have glory. There is nothing unique or special about us now. We are no longer the chosen ones. What a sad birth narrative and a sad beginning. And the overarching narrative of 1 Samuel wants you to remember that the story begins with the birth narrative. You remember 1 Samuel starts with Hannah, the barren woman who cannot have children, and she's so grieved because she wants to give an heir to her husband, Elkanah, but she can't. She's barren. 
So she goes to the house of God in Shiloh, and she lays herself down in prayer, and she cries out to God in great agony and brokenness. She weeps in the house of God. She travailed in prayer. She groaned before God. And you remember Eli rebuked her. What are you doing in here drunk? It's a shame when the spiritual leader of a nation can't recognize real prayer. And so we started with the birth narrative, the birth of Samuel from a barren mother. And from, from, from Samuel's birth, it was proclaimed that he was going to be a great prophet to the nations. He would belong only to God. The scripture tells us in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel that not one prophetic word that Samuel uttered ever fell to the ground. He was the anointed, the chosen. And then the scripture pivots, it ends with another birth narrative as now Eli has a new grandson, but this grandson has no destiny, no calling, no purpose. It's proclaimed over him, where is the glory? We have no glory. Literally reads, inglorious. You are inglorious. Worship team, if you guys want to go ahead and come, I'm going to wrap this up quickly. And the entire premise of this study is that there are two birth narratives, and we are given two options, a kind of choose today whom you'll serve. What lineage will you be a part of? There are those who live with real fear of God, real reverence, who are broken before God, and they birth Samuel, the righteous prophet. There is a woman, a barren woman even. She has no position of prestige. She's a lowly, barren woman who is dishonored, who who lays on the ground broken before God, who vows to God, I will give you all of my life and all of my child's life. If you bless me, I will honor you for the longevity of my existence. I will belong to you and my son will belong to you. There is a woman who had covenantal relationship with God and that woman bore a child even though she was barren and this child was so anointed with a prophetic gift that every word he uttered never fell to the ground. It all came to pass. Everyone was a little nervous when Samuel came around. The barren woman births a child who will change Israel's history because she lives in covenantal fear of God. Relationship with the living God. She does not bow her knee to any other. She will not be intimidated by man or serve a false god. She belongs only to Yahweh with covenantal commitment and she births the son that will change the nation. And then there is a man who lived his entire life in the temple. His entire adult career surrounded the house of God. And there was a man who outwardly belonged to God, dressed like a priest, talked like a priest, looked like a priest. But this man had grown stale at some point, and he had no real fear of God or brokenness or zeal. He kind of went through the motions and became stagnant. And this man had kids, and his kids became priests. But the scripture says literally that his sons did not know God, that there were people who lived in the house of God, but they did not know God. And they too have a child, and when the child is born, he will have no destiny, no purpose. It will be declared over him, you have no presence of God. You have no glory. And it's the premise of the study that you can pick one or the other. 
we choose what kind of church we'll be, what kind of body we'll be, how, how serious are you about the gospel?